Indeed Pod, a podcast about indie tabletop role-playing games where I interview creators about their games and inspirations and about the theory, process and practice of game design. My name is Mark Shepard, your host today and always, and your friendly local indie enthusiast. Today's interview is with Tony of Plus One EXP, an amazing indie TTRPG promoter and content creator, whose games Down We Go and Through the Void take up most of this interview. But we also had a very interesting discussion about the various incarnations of Star Trek, Related, I assure you, and for which you'll have to forgive us. Now that's out of my head and into yours, let's talk indie. So, today we're talking to Tony of Plus One. Hi there, Tony, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. I am very excited to be here. It's great that you're here, actually. I've been a big fan of what you do in the tabletop role-playing game space since I started seeing you pop up on my feed, which was, uh, I don't know, sometime last year. So, it is good to finally have you on the podcast. Same for me, but for you. (laughs) Well, let's mutually pat each other on the back a little bit longer. No, only joking. Um, Would you like to take a minute to introduce yourself and let us know what you do in tabletop role playing game yeah so uh my name is tony vicinda and i am chief alchemist over at plus one exp because when you make the brand and run the brand you get to pick whatever cool name you want for yourself uh, yeah, we distinctively absolutely. are a uh, a mishmash or what we oftentimes call a multi-class of a brand, which it means that we uh, make games. So we design games both ourselves as well as publishing other people's games. We cover the indie RPG scene fairly extensively um, and we really use independent indie to mean independently funded. Um, so we, we tend to avoid large corporations uh, and we'll cover any sort of small press or independently funded games, uh, whether that's story or OSR track classic any of that kind of stuff um over on our youtube channel which is uh, youtube.com slash plus one exp and then we also um very oddly also took uh, a number of levels in alchemy so i make for my jobby job i make beard care and skin care products and so we have a line of tabletop game inspired beard care products one day we'll eventually get around to making lip balm and lotion bars and all that other <laughs> stuff for tabletop <laughs> rpgs probably sometime early this year um as we've got some shifts coming up but that is where the alchemy comes from and well i think and that's what really we cool do. And so, yeah 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 which is just a bizarre thing but it's something that i love that i fell into um so i design aromas and concoctions and other stuff and infuse plants into oils and then mix them all together and people smear them on their faces and bodies that's a that's another secret part of what we do that, <laughs> that probably gets the least amount of attention but you know what though you know we get a lot of people who are interested in various things on yes indeed and i think this is the first time we've had a you know a professional perfumier on on yes indeed pod so you know that's pretty cool that's pretty cool tony i sort of see what you do as kind of holding up a quite a large proportion of the indie tabletop role-playing game scene atlas like so do you want to tell us like why you think it's important that somebody takes on this role of being such a cheerleader for indie part of it's that it's my personality um so i think it's important because it makes me happy which is valid yeah not the best answer but is a very true answer um well it's, i mean it's, i think it's actually a really great answer but it's not not the one that's most interesting to other people necessarily yeah i've always been somebody <laughs> who has built platforms that help elevate other voices and I tend to identify voices that I feel like are underheard within a community that I think have powerful things to say. It's been a big part of who I've been 
most of my teen and adult life. And so when I was starting to get into game design, I started out, like a lot of people do, kind of somewhere between board games and RPGs. I played a lot of board games. I played a lot of RPGs. I played mostly GURPS, which is where I started system-wise. But I started to fall in love with a lot of just smaller games. Um, I discovered the One Shot Podcast Network, which introduced me to a whole lot of other cool indie games. I had a great local game store that carried a large collection of indie RPGs. And in the board game world, there are a lot of people who do the same type of work that you do, Marks, that I do. And that is looking at cool games that are coming up, that are coming out, that have been out for a while and saying, how do we help people access and discover and find out more about these games. And in the RPG scene outside of Dungeons and Dragons. Yes, it is. Yeah. And for me specifically, no one was doing short form content. So we, we would get blogs. The blogs tended to be long, which is great because if I'm, if I want to spend a lot of time with content, I, I like to read it. We would see, you know, interview shows, we would see actual plays, uh, but we just didn't see a lot of what I think is one of the most helpful things, which is like, Hey, in like five to 10 minutes, can you kind of explain how to play this game and what it's all about to let me know what I'm doing, first of all, but also do I want to check this thing out? Is this worth investing yeah. a lot of my time in? Yeah. And so um, when we were kind of approaching the scene, that was a big hole. And that was really one of the things I wanted to do was very tight, very consumable content that really showcased the game and had a lot of play centric conversations in it. Right. So that um, it wasn't yeah, just yeah. about. Um, hey, what is the design aspect, which I love? Uh, what are some of the thematic elements, which are usually what sells me in a game? Uh, but what is this game actually like in play and how do we focus on the play of this game and how do we create content that really showcases that um, that's a lot of what I wanted to do when we first started out and so like everything we do from actual plays to interviews to everything else is really geared around trying to create more and more of both our TLDP which is our or our, our inventory management which is essentially are the same but it just kind of depends on what type of game it is uh, but they're short form videos that do exactly that along yeah. the way one of the things that came up in Zine Quest 3 was I was doing <laughs> almost daily streams that were basically like I'm going to talk about 10 to 12 Kickstarters today, go through them, diagnose both the page as well as break down the game really quickly, talk about what I'm seeing and what I like and those, even though those were strung together into an hour long piece, they were basically about every five minutes me going to the next game and the next Wow, <laughs> that's incredible I grinded a lot in Zine Quest 3, um, that was yeah. really where we went from being a, a new channel that nobody had heard of to m people being much more aware of us, we have 20 to 40 people who were logging on almost every single day in the afternoon because uh, in the middle of everybody was home then to just hear whatever games out of the 400 something games that launched during Zine Quest 3 uh, we covered about two thirds of them through that process wow, that is impressive yeah yeah and then I died I'm thoroughly impressed <laughs> and so yeah. even now our back request which has moved away from Kickstarter kind of decentralizing that to including itch store launches other stuff like that we still do the same thing it's five minutes we try to do those every two weeks but it's been so super hit or miss over the last yeah. uh, three months as the channels kind of shifted and grown and changed. Um, but anything we can do to draw attention and eyes to really cool small projects, regardless of somebody's budget, especially for first time or marginalized creators, um, that's 100% what we are passionate about doing. Um, and figuring out how we do that in collaboration with and working with the designers is a big part of that. So we, we love it when they're able to come run. If they aren't, we try to have them come on as a player. Um, sometimes neither one of those is possible, but it's very rare, at which case we'll work with them to maybe identify a team member or a contributor uh, who can kind of step in in their stead and do some of those pieces yeah. also. 
That's really fun. And I've, I watched a couple of your streams during Zemo and I had a fantastic time. The one that I'm thinking of particularly is Adam Bell's game. Oh, uh, Legend Has It. Legend Has It, which was really fun. Um, your stream for that was really fantastic. I enjoyed that a lot. I know you did absolutely loads of actual plays during Zemo, which was really cool. Of we did you. a lot. We did, a, we even did less than we did last year and it was still a lot. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, like a year in to see some of the shifts and folds of who's really excited to come on stream. I approach almost everything unless somebody's a friend or somebody I've interacted with a lot. I'm always like, you probably have never heard of us before. Like, you know, you probably don't know who we are. Would love to have you come on because the scene is so big. I think it's always worth that. But a lot of people, it's the first time they've ever been asked by anybody to come on or do something. They're like, well, why would you want to do my project? Or sometimes the project isn't ready for stream and that's okay, right? We're always like, yeah, let us know when you get close to publication. We'd love to love to still work with you. Mm. I just love getting to see the different types of things that are coming out. And now we have a lot more people who, rather than just being like, what is Tony like, who are coming and saying, hey, can we be on stream? And that's, that's incredibly helpful in a way that people don't realize. Reaching out to content yeah. creators. Like, like, I know for us, like you schedule out well in advance. So for us, it was a big conversation about when our calendar is lined up to be able to do something. I tend to float about two months out just because um, a lot of people don't know what they're doing six months from now. Are they kind of do but then they're like they may be like oh it actually is a month earlier or it's actually five months <laughs> later or, yeah. or any of those types of things and so i tend to like float float about two months out as far as booking goes because that's when things tend to firm up for people and they tend to have playable prototypes uh, around that time yeah i just get overexcited i just like start a conversation <laughs> oh who wants to come in yes indeed uh yeah and now suddenly i'm six months booked up again it's so. easy to do like uh, my <laughs> problem is even as i tried to go down to like i'm gonna do two streams a week that's it only two actual plays maybe an interview so maybe we'll go to three I tried to do that and like this last week I had 10 streams over eight days that I yikes and (laughs) it was a blast but like I am going loopy I mean it is work like for one thing but they're all super enjoyable but you spend that much time playing different characters it does do something to your brain a little bit does yeah yeah but I had just such a blast um, over the last week I got to play games that I've been excited about for six to eight months um, that we're finally at a point where they're getting ready to launch on Kickstarter and are now in play mode. And oh, that's fantastic. It's yeah. so much fun. Like it's so much fun to be able to just dive into all these different games day after day. If I could, if I could just do this, I would just do this. <laughs> Absolutely. You might not know this, but there's, there's not a ton of money that indie RPG designers have themselves to then be able to say, here's how I'm going to invest in the people who are marketing my game uh, or supporting mm-hmm. them. Yeah. So um, I'm sure, I'm sure you've never experienced that, but it is a thing. Oh no. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean like I do, I do absolutely love of it like i said it is really easy for me to then all of a sudden say well maybe i'll just add one more stream maybe i'll add yeah. two more streams yeah. maybe i'll play I know what you mean. for eight days straight so i, I think my <laughs> zine quest 3 experience was really really similar to yours because i think i did 22 interviews yeah. overall yeah it was fun but like recording and editing 22 interviews in the space of 28 days is just like super super intense and mm-hmm. there's the risk of burnout there but i think also <laughs> one of the things that maybe people game designers and customers don't notice is that like zine quest and side quest as well were really 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 good for content creators like ourselves because we can absolutely like blast out major advertising for ourselves as well and it just it's it's pretty cool it's very useful both ways so like when kickstarter said uh maybe we'll move this to later in the year then suddenly i was like oh that could be quite bad for what we do. So I'm glad there was a creator-led effort to to do something about that. Oh, and at the end of the day, like we can't let funding platforms dictate 
the flow of our process. And unfortunately, because it's currently the normal mode for accessing the market, it does. And that's that's one of the things I love the most about Zine Month and SideQuest, where creators getting together to say, no, we actually, we would like to do this differently. And we would like to plan things out. And we would like to have ownership of this. And it's fine, whatever platform or however you're choosing to access this event. Yeah. We want to start moving together as a community to make some of these things happen. And great things have come out of that. I think the biggest question always becomes, how do we keep that kind of communal momentum Mm, building mm. forward? And a lot of that lives in the content creation space, right? A lot of that that energy and excitement lives kind of on the press side of things. Though we were not formally part of the Zine Month organization, since it's a democratized reality more than Zine Quest was, it didn't feel weird all of a sudden when somebody's like, oh, well, Tony's a part of Zemo, I'd be like, well, I am a part of Zemo. I just may not be the part that you mean. What, ex- what exactly do you mean? If you <laughs> yeah. mean in charge of, you're wrong. If you mean uh, very excited about and wanting to support a whole lot, absolutely, absolutely. I, I got am. exactly the same experience with SideQuest because my involvement with SideQuest was I suggested a silly name and then apparently that was the name that got chosen. And then all of a sudden I'm like, like name dropped all the time when people talk about it. It's like, it really doesn't have anything to do with me. I didn't even particularly cover it <laughs> very hard. I so. said a name, uh, you picked the name. Yeah. Like Charlie from Fairlandy Studios and me and a couple other people having drinks at a bar talking about the idea is not the same as me doing any of the work that went into helping organize, create and make the event happen. Though, I mean, again, Plus One did a, did a lot of support just like you did, just like a lot of other people did to make sure the event got the coverage it needed. And it's cool. It's cool to see those things happening and taking place and more and more content creators stepping in and saying, how can I support this? How can I support? How can I support this? Uh, People who even didn't think about themselves as content creators, people who do like just TikTok content. And when I say just TikTok content, I mean, do TikTok content. There's not meant to be reductive, but who thought of themselves as like, oh, I just post videos up right about things I like all of a sudden realize, oh man, when I cover a game, that's sometimes hundreds of sales for that creator that I may not be considering. And so it's very cool to see that kind of understanding coming in for um, a lot of folks in in different areas. I'm thinking of like Goblin Mixtape doing the review of Litchcraft last year, which got millions of views on TikTok. Sam and Philippa are like really the two who I think I loved seeing their TikTok channels like come alive in a new way and the way that helped readers. And then even like we learned small things like posting a video link as a comment in itch juices the algorithm tremendously in your favor, right? Which oh, really? That's I didn't cool. know until we, we saw this happen a couple of times and it makes me realize, okay, cool. Like I need to be more intentional about whatever platform I'm using, YouTube, TikTok, doesn't matter. Like whenever I'm creating video content, making sure I'm linking that and dropping it as a comment. Um, other thing, even if they posted as a as a video above, like I can go in and say, here's how much fun I had playing this game. I can review it, right. I can comment on it, I can right. post the video. I know that's going to help a whole lot. Uh, jump so them up the, the stats. Um, yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff that we keep on learning about the weird realities of how algorithms interact with content that yeah. is interesting to you and I. Yeah. And listeners are probably like, I want to talk about games. <laughs> <laughs> so we can talk about games. And I know that you are a games creator at Plus One. Would you like to talk about 
some of the stuff that you've been making in the last year or so? We got started with a game that I feel like it's one of my favorite games we've ever made, but that was two years ago and Zine Quest 2, and that was Beards and Beyond. And it's the game we made that I feel like a bunch of people supported and no one ever talks about, which is, I don't know, it's weird as a game designer to be like, I don't think anybody doesn't like it, but it was before we were doing any content or anything else like that. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and it came I, out right. It does as, ring a bell now. Yeah. Yeah. Right as we were like doing repugnant. Uh, and creating content, it actually like released to the world. And so to the point where we didn't even really get a chance to cover our own game as it dropped, um, which was a very interesting reality. But we we really, in the last year, I worked with John DeCampos, who is a, a board games creator who wanted to do an RPG. He's, he plays on stream with us sometimes. And we had played a session of Neon Lords of the Toxic Waste, which is this cool BX, basic expert D&D um, hack where you're in this kind of 80s inspired post-apocalyptic wasteland. Uh, and you're just kind of picking your way through it. It's a very cool thing. And he he was inspired by that to be like, what if we did a game that just kind of cranked up the the trash and the junk and the grossness and went somewhere a little bit more like Garbage Pail Kids? And so we created Repugnant, which is the world's most disgusting RPG, not dehumanizing <laughs> in any way, but like the intent is like you are characters who have control over farts or boogers or <laughs> eating gross things or doing gross things. Right. And you're all these weird races. And John's got this tremendous art style that was it's it, we did a very punk, very like uh, Rat Fink style art every spread is different that it's just a beautiful beautiful uh zine that we did for for zine quest three we did that together it's gone out to backers now um it's about to go up on retail in a number of different places we did i toaster with exalted funeral which is me processing i don't know if this is a this is a definitely an american thing i don't know that it translates to other countries as well but there's a, <laughs> there's a movie called the brave little toaster that was very popular in the 80s that also has two follow-up movies what people don't know about brave little toaster is the principles on that movie went on to found a little studio named pixar oh that's very interesting yeah a lot of the visual gags that you see in pixar movies all exist in brave little toaster also too which is which it was a children's book but the movie is dark and terrifying in the way that only (laughs) 80s like uh, animated films were and it's one of my favorite movies of all time uh and so we made made i toaster which is a short little homage to that that i just absolutely love it's it's still in stock at exalted funeral it's about to get its first intentional reprint there was an issue with the first print run so it's technically it's third printing uh and so uh, we've got some support materials coming out for that we're going to do a little jam and do an adventure anthology and some expanded gm tools coming out for that but it's a little a6 zine Uh, we create a lot of supplements for other people's uh games as we go also too but the big focus for the last year was working with marcus linderham who's the sweetest designer and a team of about almost 20 designers from different places around the globe oh wow uh, the global north and the global south to develop uh, what started from Marcus as a one-page RPG uh, called Down We Go. And it was Marcus's attempt to kind of wrap their brain around the OSR, the old renaissance scene, which... Uh, we were talking about right before in live. Like, we were, yeah. What does yeah. OSR even mean? And that's a great question. And I was the developer on the system, which you might think, why does a one-page RPG need a developer? It's a great question. It doesn't, uh, typically. Um, <laughs> what we did is we took the one-page RPG and after playing it with Marcus a couple times on stream and over, you know, online, had just decided, I was like, hey, I'd be super interested in like bringing like a 12-page version of this if there were like city rules, right? Because every dungeon is one page. The core rules is in character sheet fit on a half like an a5 page the system was very compact 
compact and really elegant design. Um, mm. And I was like, if you created city rules, I would be super interested in doing like a 12-ish page like print product of this. And Marcus came back with this set of city rules that were about these shifting districts in the city that was always a little bit different every time you you went out and came back. And the dungeons had this quality where they were the same map every single time, but there were four different versions of the dungeon. So it might be okay. like the tomb, but it might be like you're going to the glowing tomb or you're going to the cool. flooded tomb or you're going mm-hmm. to... The whatever tomb. And so there was a lot of this kind of shifting and modular aspects of nothing's quite the same when you go back to it. The old thing for dungeon crawling is like there's only two things you need for dungeon crawling, and that's a dungeon to go to and a city to go back to. And that's yes, it. Yes, yes. You can go back to that dungeon over and over again if you want to. But Marcus actually made it so that the dungeon actively changed. And then when we were we were in playtesting and we were adding in some other elements and talking about what other things we want. In addition to this kind of shifting city, which is very cool, the, the way the districts worked and how they were each a little bit different in the same way every time you went to them. And I was like, what do, what do we want? What are the other pieces we want? And, and Marcus was like, I think this would be cool or that would be cool. And I was like, great. I'll go find all the people who are going to do that. I'll, I'll get, put the team together, work with the team, and we'll do that. So like Sam Mui uh, did all the events for it. Aaron King did all the factions for it. Uh, Sean F. Smith did an expansion for it. People started contributing just different pieces and different ideas into it, but everything was one page procedures, simple modules. Like, um, and then I would do basic editing and concept work with them. And then Marcus would check for tone and make sure it matched his vision for the project. Uh, but it wow. developed into this really interesting as we were play testing it more and more. Marcus would ask players all these really intensive questions and he would put things in the dungeons based on what the players were saying. And the GM never yeah, rolls. Yeah. It's all player facing mechanics. And so players had a ton of control in this in a way that was really tremendous to see in an OSR thing and really allowed players yeah. to drive yeah. narrative in some really interesting, almost story game ways. And I noticed Marcus was doing it over and over and I was like, is that how you want the game to work? You don't have that written down anywhere. He goes, yeah, I don't. <laughs> It's like, great, (laughs) let's fix that. Uh, And here's what we're going to call it, you know? That's the classic thing of the designer, like, um, not playing the game as it's written. But it wasn't written (laughs) against that. It just wasn't included anywhere, right? And and that's, like, why I'm so invested in, like, a lot of games, a lot of games, when they come on our stream, it's their first time getting a full playthrough, even by very experienced designers. It doesn't mean the games are bad, but compared to other types of game design, RPGs, because there's more of a culture of how we play that matters, don't have the same kind of design rigor a lot of the time, especially for light or medium weight games that you would see in board games or Euro games or heavyweight RPGs um, with a lot of crunch. But even the, the heavier RPGs are still like, look, core mechanics are pretty much what you need. Everything else we're going to figure out if the math works, you know. So we just kind of noticed these different pieces that were emerging. And because it was a global voice, because it wasn't centered on, um, even though for b- both Marcus and I are cis white males, we already come from very different backgrounds. Marcus is Swedish and lives in Sweden. You know, I'm here in the U.S. The other voices that came in and got to really speak very intentionally into it and especially into the lore and what happens in the world itself and the environment itself. None of those folks who who are collaborators on that, um, Aaron King, you know, Sam Bowie, uh, Pamu, like all these designers, they all brought in their own voices and their own perspectives. And they got to tell us a lot about what does it feel like to inhabit the world of Down We Go? Mm. And it was my favorite part of designing everything. Like yeah, I always tell yeah. people, 
uh, like when you're crowdfunding or you're itch funding, no one cares about your team as much as you do. Like it's sad, but like the average consumer like isn't looking for you to put your team at the top because they probably don't know who they are. I don't think that's good or bad. I mean, I think that's just a reality. So I'm not naming it as like, we need to solve that problem. Uh, there's a lot of game designers, no matter how savvy you are, there's always going to be game designers you don't know. It's just a reality. There's always new people coming into the scene. And so my big thing is, unless you have somebody who you know is like going to bring a lot of attention to your game, create a good team section, but don't worry about it. But for down we go for like the weeks leading up to the, the Kickstarter every day, I was posting a different collaborator, linking out to their work, sharing about what they were doing in it, sharing what they brought to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it was very important to me and it ended up being the mm. most beautiful part was really the global perspective that was brought into that. And in the world of like old school design, there's a thing called Sword Dream, um, which really comes out of like Ray and Pamu and Nate and a few other people who were, were very kind of dedicated to saying, we want to do non-toxic OSR design. And really what it was a lot of minimalist design or things that placed a lot of emphasis on player skill or player facing mechanics without a lot of the baggage that old school role-playing games brought with them. And so uh, it's a very equitably focused process. And a lot of what we really did in the process was trying to think about, okay, what do we want to do that really steps outside of a lot of the trips? And also just what are we excited to do? How are we excited to play? I love player facing questions. I love when players have high control. I love when the GM is really there to arbitrate and facilitate and make sure everyone's having a good time, but that they are really a player also. And a lot of the games, I think the best type of player facing design to the point where it's almost GM agnostic, really let the GM kind of step back into player space and so for the last year a lot of the work was was on that we've done we've done other small games and designs uh, along with that but our big focus was was getting down we go and the together we go um, which is the system that we kind of codified out of that uh, written down set up and out into the world Um, alongside that I started working on the sci-fi version of that which is through the void which is our upcoming big project that kind of takes yeah. a lot of the things we learned in Down We Go, especially through the editing and refinement process and says, okay, now we know how to do this. Uh, let's throw that into the inky blackness of space. Let's step away from even a human-centric society and let's explore what this looks like yeah. in the stars. And yeah. so that's that's really like the big thing. That's where thing we're going next. We've got yeah. coming up, yeah. I'm resisting the temptation to say through the void with loads of reverb over the top of it. because. <laughs> but but that's the, that's the vibe, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a cool concept. Do you want to do you want to like throw out some elevator pitch as to what through the void is going to look like and what it feels like? Yeah, yeah. And it was really even funny. Like I tweeted out about this, but I was like, when you write ad copy again after a project's done, like you write your kind of initial ad copy, you're like, okay, this is what the game is, and it's really quick and it's really whatever. Then you get into the design work, and you then send it to somebody else to look at. And in this case, I sent it to you to do an ad when we were doing our itch funding campaign. I said I rewrote everything about the premise during that time, but it's like after the solar wars nothing was left empires demolished cultures are destroyed and the legion is scattered across the void as a shadow of its former self all that remains is the station eternus looming in the middle of space an impossible structure built of rings within rings constantly shifting warring and changing surrounded by the inky blackness of space and the vast ruins from generations of war that slowly whimpered out. For decades now, Eternus has survived in the salvage of bygone eras, small outlying colonies and asteroid mines, along with the sweat, toil, and blood of drifters, those desperate few willing to leave the safety of the rings and go through the void. It's cool. It's fun vibes, right? <laughs> it's really fun. There's a lot to pick up on that. Um, for me, like, through the void is my deconstruction of genre archetypes. Yeah, yeah. I love hard sci-fi. I love... um. <laughs> 
I love dirty, sexy sci-fi. So like I love Star Trek, but Deep Space Nine and the new Picard are probably my favorite versions of Star Trek. And they're the most human and gritty versions of it. And that's what I love. I love the hopefulness of the Federation. But like even when that was written, both the original Gene Roddenberry series as well as The Next Generation, they were pushing a lot of interesting concepts, but they were still doing it from a white European colonialist mindset while still trying to be more egalitarian. So it's very beautiful to see the attempt and note the failings along the way. I think for mm. me, the biggest thing is because it shows us how we get better. Yeah. Um, and Deep Space Nine was the first time Star Trek as a whole stopped and said, yeah, but even in this future that we presented, humanity's not there. Like, it's not. There are tons of things that we've even allowed to, to seep in that are racial biases, that are awkward tropes, that are totally not aligned with something that the Federation proposes to be as a really kind of conservative space force that doesn't fight but just uses ideological imperialism to overcome its enemies and that's weird to uphold that as a really wonderful thing yeah because it's it's not right we don't see alien cultures influencing the federation much you see the federation influencing alien cultures yeah even though that's the opposite intent i mean i've been watching next generation like through for the last few months and yeah <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot throughout it which totally tallies up with what you're saying there yeah those first two seasons we kind of try to forget about <laughs> i mean i got through them um and i slept through quite a lot of them which was definitely a bonus but when you start hitting season three and it has some absolute stellar episodes and it's really really good and then you're you're thinking oh the next episode is gonna be great as well and then mm-hmm. i don't know you get something like a really horrible sketchy love triangle scenario for Riker, and it's just like why are you putting this in this isn't good you know and there's there's some really really bad episodes that have horrible horrible endings it just doesn't have to be like that and then you switch on deep space nine and all of a sudden it's like ah this is what you should have actually been driving towards all along because this is the flawed side of humanity but also like the hopefulness of that it's great yeah (laughs) the first season of ds9 Leans so much on Next Generation. Like I rewatching it as an adult with one of my kids was like, oh, they really were just saying if you if you liked the Next Generation, here's the yes. people we're keeping around, <laughs> and here's the continued bring back implants. We're gonna we're gonna keep on throwing pieces in, and even even when Worf comes back seasons later, it doesn't have that same feeling. No. Part of it because they tied it together really well in the cinematic universe. There's no Enterprise for him to be on anymore right now. Um, but also because it just it made sense with the narrative evolution um, and managed to bring back a beloved character. But I mean, but at the same time, I love like really in the first series, we see Riker representing depending on where people are at. But I think from a writer's room perspective, a lot of times I think we see Riker as the self implant and he is also the Kirk of the series because Kirk was definitely the self implant in the original series. Uh, Riker, I think, is supposed to be yeah. the second one. Like we all kind of hope we're somebody else. But like for a lot of people who the, the, the show was targeted at, that's who it was. And then we have O'Brien in Deep Space Nine, who's really the self implant, who is not confident, who is skilled, who is clever but is incredibly, incredibly flawed in a very surface way. Mm-hmm. It's tremendously acknowledged. Yeah. And that's really cool. And also all these self-implants are obviously white men because that's what TV does. But <laughs> like, yes. as O'Brien is not the powerful individual in this scenario. Actually, he's not even an officer. He's a chief, uh, which means he's non-commissioned. Um, and so that's a good point. It's a very cool <laughs> 
shifted position to be like, yeah, like you're in there and you're important, but you're not who this story is about. And you probably should not have been for as long as you were. Anyways. Does O'Brien feel like a through the void protagonist? Yeah. O'Brien definitely has a couple levels in tech um, <laughs> and one level in Merc um, from back when he was in, you know, in the war. He definitely has a Legion officer background, even though he's not, not technically an officer. He's constantly at risk of dying. Yeah, he, he absolutely is. Uh, but even I would say like through the void, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit toneless. Like we want people to bring in the flavor they want to it. Obviously, whenever you're writing, like we, we talk about it as like anchored anti-canon. So like one of the design principles principles for Through the Void as well as for All Together We Go Games. There is no set canon for the world, but anytime you as a writer or as a GM or as a player, which are all three in our in our conceit are part of the design team, anytime you name something as important, you're anchoring the canon in a way. So if there's force-like powers in your play of this game, that's fine. But when you decide that you're anchoring the canon in a certain way, that's going to shift and pull on everything else mm. um, in a way that matters. In the same way, everything that we've created for the setting does the same thing. You as a GM can choose to totally leave those pieces out. Like you can just say, no, this doesn't provide the anchor I want in this setting. We're not using this faction or this location or this whatever. And we we want that. We desire that. By writing them, we are suggesting a tone, um, which is really kind of like a retro futurism. It's far more hard sci-fi, but hard sci-fi that looks like Star Trek original series. So it's yeah. Babylon 5 yeah. or Battlestar Galactica, but far more cassette futurism in tone. Does and this so, look more like Traveller or Stars Without Number, say? if we were I would gonna... say Traveller, um, which is really funny because, you know, Mega Traveller has a huge influence. And Mega Traveller, you could give this string of numbers that represented what type of world you were yes. creating, which could include things like magic. Traveller First Edition has that as well, and I just think it's yeah. It's very, very cool. You know, <laughs> it's um, one of my favorite and, things about that game. Yeah. It, well, no, it is. And that's one of the things like for me, I don't think we may even end up with a checklist in the book. That's like, do you want these things as part of kind of your session zero? Like, do we want force like powers? Do we want, you know, this other thing? So like there's a lot of head nods to a lot of different things. But if as you're playing, the ship combat feels far more like Firefly, which uh, it might be like ship combat. There's no weapons on Firefly. Yep. Um, Like that's absolutely a big thing. A lot of ships in the universe just won't have any sort of substantive weapon um, to the point where if you come up against a military cruiser, you probably have something that can shoot down mines, but you probably need to come up with another way to address the military cruiser. Again, that's something that kind of falls out of Traveler as well, you know, like you yeah, can like that's the it. thing. Like it's it's very it's very Traveler influenced. Like Traveler was such an important part of early RPG design that we we forget about a lot of the time. Like 2D6 mechanics, Traveler was the first one to popularize that yeah, bell curve yeah. gave it a lot of familiarity far before PBTA came out. Now the resolution mechanics are different. Um, how you know how it works with everything is different, but it's a huge part of it. Um, stat damage came out of Traveler. Like there's all these different pieces that Traveler really was the first system to design, but the modularity and the bigness of the universe that you can explore, uh, Traveler nailed as well as the reality of space and a lot of the tones like we've identified a couple of spaces we want people to explore in Through the Void and it's like you've got station and populated spaces so um, you know that's when you're on the space station that's when you've 
come to a colony that has 20 to 30 people uh, trying to eke out survival there. That's when you arrive at, you know, uh, a lunar lab that's where something's gone horribly wrong. Uh, there may be people there, there may not be, but encountering people doesn't necessarily mean safety. It means you're encountering another force of power and you have to figure out what do they want from you and mm. are you willing to engage in that? There's an immediate concern of there are bigger swirling forces at play that are represented by other sentient beings and you are small compared to them, yeah. no matter how strong you get, which brings in a lot of cool faction elements and other stuff like that. Then you have the dungeon delving aspects and things out in the void, which are lethal and cold and careless. And that's it's another type of power in which it's just the physical brute strength of things typically compared to yeah. you as a human being. Uh, and then you have ship which really um, is new to, it's new to Through the Void. It's not a thing and down we go, uh, but your ship is your home and it's the place where you probably experience whatever type of found family you experience. And it's the place where if you can feel secure, it's probably on your ship, right? Yeah. And there's there's kind of these three spaces of play that we really wanted to create good tonal shifts in between and then figure out like, how do we also invite players as we, as we want to encourage like these kind of anchors to take root? How do we even encourage GM, here's a time you should be asking questions and letting the players take control. And so like those wrangling with the narrative elements of it are a big part of right now where my, my where my brain is at in design space. Most of the mechanical aspects are done. We've got a lot of writing ahead of us yeah. uh, for Through the Void. But yeah. there's a couple narrative pieces I really want to juice up specifically around how we create these anchors. I'm super thrilled to explore some of those and create some tech that really helps say, GM, here's a time where you should ask their player what they're seeing out the port side, you know, window, and why does that matter? You know, um, yeah. one of the things we haven't clarified yet that I really want is taken from The Between by Jason Cordova. He is this thing called The Unseen in The Between, which is one of the best pieces of narrative tech. You basically are just narrating something that happens somewhere else in the city. As you go into night mode in London, there's ways it can impact, but you're not going to meet these characters. But there's a set of like four questions you ask to basically paint a scene of what's happening somewhere else in the city disconnected from your characters. And like, I love the idea of every time you take off from or return to the space station, doing a short narration of like, as we zoom out of your ship taking off and we zoom into a porthole somewhere on the station, what do we see a group of individuals doing? Let's narratively talk through that. When you return three days, two weeks, whatever later, mm. what do we see from that group now, right? Just as a way to pop, like, you'll never interact with those people. What they do may matter in this, you know, in the overall narrative, but the intent is not that you'll interact with them. The intent is we get a sense of something else happening on the station. That's interesting. You know, it's kind of like John Harper's faction clocks in Blades in the Dark. Yeah. Potentially with significantly less mechanical impact on what's actually happening in the game. And that's really interesting in itself. Yeah. It definitely helped to develop the feeling of a real living world that you're interacting with, but also kind of only on the periphery. And I think yeah. that gives you a really interesting feel and a really interesting setting. Yeah, Pretty cool. <laughs> that's the design space my brain is currently in around it. Um, but mm. the game inserted some new stuff. Like we didn't have backgrounds in Down We Go. I really wanted something that, first of all, let us do zero level stuff a little bit better, uh, but also created just a little bit more of a robust feeling of differences that were not explicitly race or species concepts 
concepts, though somebody could certainly create an alien species and have that be a background. That's not the intent. They're usually things like you were a bounty hunter or you were a legion officer or yeah. you're an andromorph, which could mean synthetic being, but also could just mean you've got a bunch of cybernetic parts. Uh, you're a verdant mystic, which is 100 percent an homage to Spock, but it's also more it's more of an homage to the character from Galaxy Quest. Uh, that's the Spock parody. Um, oh, yes. and whose name is totally escaping me at the moment. I, I'm thinking also of the, the plant-based character in Farscape. I don't know if you are familiar yeah, with Farscape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a big, big Farscape plant. Yeah, yeah, you must yeah. be the other one, yeah. And that's, that was a big <laughs> part of, like, I, there are some all. of these tropes I really love, and I want to deconstruct them, and I don't want being a Starfleet officer to be a powerful thing. Like, the Legion, is the Legion Starfleet? Kind of. Like, with a name like Legion, it doesn't sound anywhere near as civilized as, like, Starfleet, no. <laughs> right? It sounds way more like, hey, this was a this was a force of some type. Uh, and, yeah, it still exists, but, like, it's largely disbanded. It doesn't have a lot of authority anymore. But you've traveled and you've seen a lot of things and you have spent some time in, in the Legion, um, whatever that looks like in your setting. But a Verdant Mystic, a lot of people have interpreted that as, like, you, like, very much force-like powers. Uh, and have have flavored their characters to be far more like Jedi than what I had intended when I created it, which was more, yeah, Spock uh, or one of the other characters that we talked about. Because I was like, yeah, I want to say there is a spiritual reality in this world, but is that psychic powers? Is that an actual mm. faith? Is it, yeah, is it yeah, alien yeah. physiology mixed with an actual faith? What does that look like? I don't know. Like, let's let's play and find out together. Absolutely. I really, really like this idea of anti-canon. And, you know, I think there are some people out there, some game designers who like really dislike this and think, you know, when you write a game, you should be writing the setting and your players should be adhering to that. But right. I much prefer the idea of filling in the blanks. That is right. so much more appealing to me as a kind of story game tradition fanatic, <laughs> if you like. Uh, Jason Cordova, who I know I mentioned before, he's in charge of Gauntlet Publishing. I think Gauntlet puts out some of the best games we're seeing and, and really has, we, there's a ton that I, I take from the culture of the Gauntlet as somebody who, who is a member of it and other things like that, but uh, I would... My design style was really established for me by the fact that I did pro-social game design. So I ran low ropes and summer camp stuff and kind of large-scale LARPing that you wouldn't probably call LARPing, but really essentially was. And a lot of this other stuff that was really always the give and take between the physical environment that whatever people brought in with them as far as preconceived notions and the actual narrative that you were trying to do. Yeah, And that oftentimes lives far more in, in a story game space. But if we look at what the worst people actually love about traditional gaming, as well as all the good people in the in the <laughs> scene a lot of times it is the emergent story process and it's totally story right. gamey but they would never call it that and they would be upset if you called it that and jason has done a really good job with like trophy of saying uh, i've written a story game that is an osr dungeon crawler and we've done i think the inverse of that in a lot of ways like we've written a store game that is a very specific like hard tactical dungeon crawling experience right um mm -hmm. and so it's really interesting to say wherever we would define ourselves on that spectrum there's a lot of people interested in playing around in that space and for me, it comes down to like, I want people to engage in narrative a whole lot more. So every design I do is like, how do we create mechanics or triggers 
that allows somebody who's maybe never role played or never done story games to experience a taste of that in a way that's comfortable and moves them further along. Yeah. And when you talk about a system that develops player skills, um, which OSR is famous for, like player skill over character sheet. If you look at story game character sheets, they're usually like, here's two or three loose ideas and maybe a mechanical trigger or three. You're not going to look down at your character sheet for a solution. You're going to narratively work it out, which is exactly what principles of old school play want you to do. They want you to yeah. to figure yeah. this out so your character doesn't die. Unlike story games, like if you're going to die, you just be back next scene, right? Where story games are like, you're not going to die until it narratively makes sense. Uh, yes. Die. Yeah. Which, you know, some people like, some people dislike, and it all depends on your preferences. I always want that narrative skill to be something players get better and better at um, and that they can bring in to any session with them. And, you know, for me, like... We, I keep a very loose inventory system in, in any of my games. Like I don't I don't care about encumbrance or there's a max number of items. I'll tell you there may be role mechanics, but like for me, any character I play, the things I have in my pockets are the most important thing on my character sheet. Mm-hmm. And that might just be like, I'm just picking it up. There's no real inventory mechanic. It's just a narrative conceit. That's fine. But I love when you can have the random stuff in your pockets matter tremendously in a session, whether that's, yeah, yeah, I wrote yeah. down a bunch of spices and now all of a sudden my character is, you know, cooking and making food for people as an their character sheet that they're a chef no but like based on the things in their pockets we can intuit that they probably Mm, have a culinary flair that's interesting and yeah I will cook my way through a dungeon like and I've done it before and I'll do it again at some point in time. It might be a flower that only blooms at night. Right. How does that matter? I don't know, but I'm pretty sure I can unalive a boss uh, if I need to using a flower that only blooms uh, at night uh, or maybe not alive, but overcome a challenge within a dungeon through this conceit. You would have fun with Paris Gondo that we talked to Callum about. I love yeah. Paris Gondo. It's such a good it's like I was I was a very early fan. Oh, excellent. Of the inventory management system because it is 100% my jam. Um, I am a big fan of Into the Weird and Wild, uh, which is an old school supplement because it specifically like has charts like what are the weird things that you can get off of this thing that you hunted and killed? You know, what parts can you harvest from its body? Like I'm the character in any story that's always like. I'm going to take that. (laughs) Uh, Is it even a good idea to take it? No, but I'm going to put it in my pocket and it's going to come back out. It's going to come back to haunt you later. Yeah. And so it's really funny, like through the void, like, uh, and down we go, even as we were looking at the, the shop mechanics and the economics of the world and stuff like that stuff that both Marcus and I hate, like our big thing was like, okay, cool. Like if it's a small item that you could get pretty much anywhere, like it's like, I don't know, like 10 coin. If it's a rarely specialized item for dungeon delving, it's 50 coin. And there's like a list of like five examples, but it's not meant to be exhaustive in any way, shape or form. And then we're like, if it's a special item, like, you know, here's, here's a few examples and here's some ranges of cost. But like as a beginning character, you get to write down 10 items that you want to have with you. So pick and whatever that is matters. Replacing it might be hard, but whatever you're going to start with is huge. And then, you know, with through the void, even as we're starting to create some of the next steps and going a little bit deeper, like that same, you can buy anything, but I'm not going to tell you a lot about the specifics of what it costs. You know, barter is very common. Uh, the stuff that you find out in the void is going to matter when you get back to the station. Even if you roll yeah. really low on your ro- loot rolls, that's really going to be like, hey, mm-hmm. if you just want to sell it for credits, here's how much it's worth. But man, if you want to hold on to it or find somebody who's willing to swap or trade for it, you can probably do a lot more with it if you're willing to go and role play through bartering, you know, at the salvage meet, you know, um, that's happening down on, you know, ring 23. Which makes that kind of, you know, desperation and scarcity kind of a more interesting 
mechanical hook. Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, you can have money for it, but that's not that's not as interesting as like the potential story that you could get out of going and swapping it with somebody, as you said, down to level 23. That's cool. And then the temptation to pick up weird stuff while you're out exploring these incredibly lethal environments and bring it back into a populated space and then have to deal with the potential fallout of that. <laughs> also, tremendously fun from a narrative. Nostromo, level, right? anyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, like, what was stuck to the port in a cell was you were pulling back into dock, like, that matters. <laughs> and like I said, it's just, you start playing this game, especially with a mix of story gamers and OSR gamers and people who don't know the distinction between the two and watching the, you know, fail forward PBTA player very willingly say, yeah, the plants we picked up on that, that moon, because you, you ask a couple kind of seed questions, they'll immediately <laughs> put the ship in danger. They'll be like, yeah, uh, the plant life on that, that thing got up in our gears and it's still growing wild. And I burn it out a number of times, but the sporific qualities have gotten into the air. So system so we have these random plant growths that are popping out all over the ship and i keep on having to go flame them out i think i've got them all but i'm not quite sure like you'll have them say that kind of stuff at the very beginning of a session when you're just like uh, why was it hard to take off from the planet right and that's the that's their answer and your osr gamers are like why are you saying what did you just do to us right you know, and they can see being like they get back to to dock and they're they're pulling in and like their ship's gonna have to be in quarantine because there's a foreign biomass on it. And then being like, hey, can we just bribe you? Mm-hmm. The ship can go to quarantine, but we need to get through it, right? And you're like, okay, how much of that sporific quality is gonna make it out? Or if they play through it all smart and they bribe them but don't actually try to endanger the system, then you just honor that and you say, great, y'all are able to get through. You have to spend about eight hours in quarantine um, as they actually decontaminate you instead of through days you were going to and the ship's going to be in dock for you know four days uh, while they take care of everything but you've got four days on the station what are you doing like you just honor that it is that mode of like the more narrative you are the less concerned you have to be about me as the as the ref yeah thinking well wouldn't it be interesting because they didn't think about this the more narratively engaged you are the more you're telling me, here's the things we're doing to make sure the thing that you might do to destroy us later isn't actually a problem. And I go, great. That's great to know. It's not. You're right. We're good. And so that lethality is a blast. Even though characters will still live and like die and come and go quickly, the crew will continue to make smart decisions to kind of make it through the day. Um, and that's that's just a really fun place to to play around in and watch the concern of is my character going to die, even though I know they are, become enough of a trigger to encourage people to actually role play and think through their actions in a way more story game narrative way. Absolutely. Well, a lot of the things you're saying there are really, really speaking my language. And as I said, this isn't usually what I potentially classify as my bag, but like (laughs) hard science fiction mixed with this very storytelling focused system sounds extremely cool so that's coming to crowdfunding in the next so that'll go up on GameFound. like we did an itch funding run for the beta um hopefully by um we're like all things we're running behind with uh, collaborators and everything else um uh, because it is a team a team built process um and people have real lives and so by next month we'll have the beta the 20 page beta up right now there's about a five page beta that includes uh basic ship rules core character rules and then a sample of a lot of the different pieces that are built into the the game for people to play mm-hmm. and so that'll be up next month over on itch at ttrpg.link slash ttv uh we'll go to GameFound. GameFound is our funding platform of preference right now 
Um, we'll probably have a placeholder site that you can find up for that. Uh, we may have it by the end of this month. We may be uh, not till next month also for that as well. But in April, you'll start hearing a lot about Through the Void and it will be crowdfunding it early summer in 2022. Fantastic. Over on GameFound uh, at some point. So I'm very, very, very excited to see what it brings in. The only thing that will delay that is depending on how long it takes to get down we go in print and out, which really is just about how much is paper and shipping going to cost at this point in time. And so we are kind of holding a little bit on that to see if we can wait for rates to calm a little bit uh, and see some of those go back down. Uh, At the latest, those will go out in May, which means that May or June we'll be launching through the void. um, Fantastic. Yeah, you get a lot of playable content right now for the itch-funded version. Uh, The basic version is up um, and the itch-funded 20-page beta will be out next month. Uh, Plus, right now... um, We've got Together We Jam going on, which is a down we go through the void and dungeondelvers.tv content jam. So you can create for any of those systems or what a lot of people are doing is taking a lot of the narrative triggers and other elements that we codified in our designer kit and SRD um, and making totally bespoke original games um, right now over on itch as part of that jam. So yeah, if you're somebody who loves weird mixes of narrative and OSR play, especially sci-fi or high fantasy stuff, some really cool stuff going on. Um, Simon did one called uh, Together We Hunt, that is a primal Stone Age version of the game. Uh, D, who is a phenomenal story game designer, did uh, her first OSR design. It was Amazon Princess. It's two alternate classes for Down We Go. I played them the other day on stream, and they are neither is particularly combat focused, though you do get a lot of combat benefits from the Amazon. Uh, they are definitely Princess Diana, Wonder Woman inspired, uh, <laughs> but they've got strong Xena vibes also, too. I played uh, Lady Zara Blood spiller and i have never felt more powerful as an osr character in a game literally because one of the powers is just do something that shows off your strong physique like a feat of strength Uh, and i like hurled boulders at snowbanks and all kinds of weird stuff uh, (laughs) using that ability it's very very good (laughs) Um, uh, so just a bunch of both support and supplemental stuff if anybody wants to take their their stab at osr design it's all very modular usually one or two pages max Uh, it's a very cool place to design and then uh, we're going to have a print anthology of a lot of that stuff coming out through exalted funeral this summer fantastic yeah well, that's really good. That's a great way to support people as well. If we're going to check out all that cool stuff, we'll need to know where we can find you online. So, Tony, do you want to let us know where we can do that? Yeah, the best place to find us is at Plus One EXP across most social media platforms. If for some reason it's not at Plus One EXP, that just means somebody got there before I did. Uh, Dang. It's Tony Plus One on Twitch and Itch. The ch- both are Tony Plus One. Everything else is at Plus One <laughs> EXP. And you can find out about those games, everything else we do. Twitter is great. Uh, we have a Discord, which we have now started opening up to the community for if people are cool we would love to have them in that community if you're not cool we would love to not have you in that community Um, and by cool i just mean do you treat other human beings like they're human beings and treat them with kindness generosity in the way they want to um do we gatekeep around that absolutely if i can swear on this podcast yeah Uh, (laughs) and so if you are a toxic individual uh we will remove you from the community however If you're not and you're interested in cool narrative design, uh, being on streams, the work that we do and being able to follow that, um, that feel free to to check out probably the pinned tweet on our Twitter account for that information or I'll make sure it's in the show notes also. Well, that's absolutely brilliant. And I guess all that remains for me to say is thank you very much for coming on Yes Indeed Pod and good luck with See, that's where I'm going to add some reverb there. You know, it's going to be it's going to be fun (laughs) for you. Thank you so much for having me.
Thanks for listening, and thanks again to Tony for the interview. As always, you can find all of the links in the episode description. Next time, I'm talking to Josh Fox and Becky Anderson, two amazing designers whose games Lovecraft-esque and Bite Marks have become nom de jour in certain indie TTRPG circles. They're also the hosts of Black Armada Tales, a newer actual play podcast that's been doing some really interesting things with its opening seasons. Tune in in two weeks to find out more. This week's episode has been kindly sponsored by the Quiet Power Podcast. Are you in need of a solid 10 to 15 minutes to chill out? Do you want to learn skills that might help you manage your emotions in stressful situations, or unwind after a long day? If Reverend Jamie O'Dwyer knows the struggle all too well. Jamie has been working in suicide prevention on and off for several years, and noticed there was a pattern of things that helped people. And that's why Jamie made Quiet Power, the podcast where you can chill out, add to your emotional first aid kit, and develop resilience to get through each day. There's no magic involved, no promises to fix all your problems, but it might help you get through today. You can find Quiet Power on your podcast app of choice and on Twitter and Facebook at Quiet Power Pod. This week, I'd like to thank some new and some old supporters. Audrey Shankle, Patrick Buchner, Thomas Elliott, Craig Duffy, Carl Rigney, Dono McCarthy, and Dale Blackburn. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for your ongoing support. We couldn't do what we do without you. And you, yes, you can get a regular shout out and joyful thanks too if you go to patreon.com slash yesindeedpod and sign up today. You'll get access to our Discord server where we can hang out and chat and even join monthly editing streams and the Yes Indeed Pod book club. Most of the money will go directly to creators rather than to me, so you'll be investing directly in the indie scene, helping to make it a healthy and inclusive place for years to come. And if you can't commit regularly, you can always help out by rating and reviewing the show wherever you find your podcasts, or by donating through the Ko-Fi page at ko-fi.com slash yesindeedpod. Of course, you can always reach out to me through Twitter at yesindeedpod, that's Y-E-S-I-N-D-I-E-D-P-O-D. I'd love dearly to hear from you. Lastly, music credits. All music is taken from Be Quiet by Yatsar from the Free Music Archive, released under Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 International License. Thanks, Yatsar. Until next time, remember, does Indy need you? Yes, indeed.